the House of Representatives can't figure out who to put in charge. For two weeks, the House has had no speaker. That means no one is setting the legislative agenda, no one making sure bills get passed through Congress. And the House is at this standstill after one man kept trying to get the job, Jim Jordan. Just Wednesday, Jordan tried and failed a second time to get the Republican Party behind him. No, I don't know. I'm going to guess we'll vote tomorrow, but I don't know. That's a guess. I don't know. Okay, thank you. That was Bob Good of Virginia, one of the staunchest supporters of Jim Jordan you could find. He looks demoralized, defeated, and uh, he's just off the House floor, and we are milling about in this sort of chaotic scene. That's Paul Kane, senior congressional correspondent for The Post. And he was up on Capitol Hill Wednesday, witnessing this drama unfolding. Any idea what you're doing next? Uh, well, there's food, so down the Okay. All right. Well said. That's uh, Susie Lee of Nevada in her third term here in Congress. She's a Democrat. And uh, as you can tell, nobody really knows what's going to happen next. And that's not good because there is a lot going on right now that Congress will need to handle. A war in the Middle East, a looming government shutdown, among other things. So I called up my colleague, Mariana Sotomayor, who covers the House, to ask about all this uncertainty. Mariana, you've had a pretty busy two weeks, yeah? Yes. (laughs) How how. Tell me about how it's felt. It's I don't know, is it chaos up there? It is chaotic and completely unpredictable. And it's pretty striking when your sources who typically know exactly what's going to happen say that they don't. And lawmakers are asking us reporters, what's going to happen? What do I do next? We don't have those answers. They're supposed to provide it to us. So that is that kind of limbo that the House of Representatives has been completely living in the last several weeks. Not exactly reassuring when they're asking you what's going to happen, right? That's right. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Thursday, October 19th. House Republicans are trying to get their act together, including some pushing a temporary solution to this whole not having a speaker problem. Today, Mariana explains how we got to this point— and tells us more about the man who's at the center of it, Jim Jordan. Well, Mariana, a lot has happened in Congress the past two weeks, or maybe a lot hasn't happened if we think about it another way. And I want to talk through all of the drama that has unfolded with who is going to be Speaker of the House. So let's first start with the event the most recent event that kicked all of this off, and that happened on Tuesday, October 3rd. So what happened there? Republicans ousted McCarthy from being Speaker of the House. The office of Speaker of the House is hereby declared vacant. There were a lot of predictions that Kevin McCarthy, the former, now former speaker, would be out by October. And the reason why is because September 30th is a fiscal deadline. It's when you're supposed to fund the government. And McCarthy, earlier this year, he made a lot of promises, and a lot of them hinged on how to fund the government. 
however, a number of hardline Republicans who have constantly been a thorn in McCarthy's side, a thorn in the governing Republican side, said, nope, you worked with Democrats to try and fund the government, so we need to remove you from being Speaker of the House. And that has set off this complete unpredictable moment where we just don't know if any Republican can get the necessary 217 votes on the House floor to become Speaker. So McCarthy gone at that point. What happened next? Like, who was then in charge of the House after McCarthy was ousted as Speaker? So in the minutes after McCarthy was ousted by eight Republicans, Patrick McHenry Why will we give up a conservative working majority for better outcomes and hand the keys over to the Democrats? Why would we do that? A Republican from North Carolina became the speaker pro tempore, which is just a fancy way of saying the temporary speaker without many powers. So I understand why the left is where you are today. You don't like an effective conservative majority, and I don't blame you. Patrick T. McHenry from North Carolina is... McCarthy's best friend, his biggest ally over the years on Capitol Hill. And essentially, all that it says that his responsibility is, is oversee elections for speaker. That's it. There's nothing more that he can do. And now, as the weeks have gone on, there are conversations about possibly empowering him if no Mm -hmm. one can become the permanent speaker. Right. So right now, Probably a lot of Americans didn't even know this guy's name before before all this happened, is functioning like a caretaker of the House of Representatives. In the meantime, Republicans are trying to get themselves together to figure out, okay, who's going to be permanent speaker? So walk me through how that process unfolded. Who did they consider or go to first or who sort of emerged first as, oh, this could be the next speaker of the House? So— We always knew that Steve Scalise, he is the number two, he's a majority leader of the House of Representatives right now. He's always wanted to be speaker. He's been in leadership equally as long as McCarthy. And he was challenged by Jim Jordan, who is known as a conservative firebrand. He created the House Freedom Caucus and continues to wield this influence among the Trump base. He is one of the figureheads of the MAGA movement because he has helped Trump over the years in many different ways, including trying to overturn the 2020 election. And there Mm -hmm. is a significant group of House Republicans who want to see him become speaker because he's not the traditional kind of Republican leader. They, a lot of these conservatives have considered Steve Scalise an establishment figure because he has been in leadership for a very long time, even though he himself is extremely conservative. Right. So what is it about Scalise that they don't like? Scalise has been the one in charge of what gets put on the floor, how it gets to the floor, how Hmm. bills should be crafted so that they can pass the House. And a lot of these Republicans are kind of over that, which if you're— thinking while you're hearing this, wait, isn't that legislating? Isn't that how government is supposed to function? (laughs) That's correct. One thing that has been very notable over the last week is seeing people like Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, Congressman Matt Gaetz actually cheer and clap when a simple fact that's been pointed out over Jim Jordan is that he hasn't actually passed legislation in 16 years. They are happy about that. 
So Scalise had a lot of work to do. And he spent a day or so just trying to twist arms, make sure people could vote for him, a significant amount of Republicans. And we saw him choose not to go to the House floor because he knew he would lose. Mm. And instead, he actually addressed the conference after a couple of days. He did see the writing on the wall and said, you know what? I have to bow out. I, I, I know I'm never going to get to 217 in large part because a lot of allies to Jim Jordan, a lot of those conservatives just said, I'm never going to vote for this guy. And it was too big of a block. Mm. Uh, I just share with my colleagues that I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the speaker designee. If you look at over the last few weeks, if you look at where our conference is, there's still work to be done. Uh, Our conference still has to come together and is not there. So Scalise knew that he would not be able to convince them otherwise for him to become speaker. Okay, so Steve Scalise has taken himself out of the equation, and now Jim Jordan emerges, um, generally... How do Republicans feel about him, and how does that process start to unfold? Well, obviously, a lot of those far-right hardliners love Jim Jordan. You know, I'm sticking with him through the process. Jim is a, you know, he's got a history, and he knows what's exactly, you know, people know about him. They see that, you know, their goal of reforming the House, whatever that may actually be, could actually happen. However, the way that Jordan and his allies had conducted themselves during that campaign really, really upset a number of allies to Steve Scalise. How so? A number of those Scalise allies were just really upset that Jordan, behind closed doors, never actually publicly to them conceded to Scalise. And there is this feeling amongst a number of Republicans that they really can't trust Jordan. And he did work over the weekend to try and convince a number of people. He did convince a handful by giving them some promises, including on things that, you know, the far right has been very vocally against, like funding Mm. the government, like aiding Ukraine, sending them more money. And he was telling a number of Republicans who are in charge of getting those things done, we will be able to do that. Don't worry. He was telling a lot of moderate Republicans who are worried about how Jordan is perceived electorally, don't worry. I can keep the Freedom Caucus members off of your back. I can keep Fox News and Trump off of your back. Don't worry. But there's still a group of Republicans who just don't believe he would be able to do that because he's never shown the ability to be able to lead in that way. So can you walk me through then how Jim Jordan has preceded both this pressure campaign and how he's trying to, you know, whip up support and then what took place on the the floor of the House of Representatives? Yeah. So over the weekend, we had heard from a number of Republicans and their aides, mostly moderate Republicans, that they were getting a lot of incoming from Jordan allies, very blunt, direct threats saying, you know, if you don't vote for Jordan on the floor, then we're going to come after you. We're going to primary you. And one congressman, Don Bacon, he's he's known as a moderate. He's held on to a very swing district seat for a long time. His wife was getting anonymous calls and text messages from people 
threatening her, saying, you know, if your husband votes the wrong way, we're going to come after you. He started sending texts to my my wife anonymously and calling her anonymously with threats. It's wrong. And uh, we just need to put light on it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It, and, and, you know, ever since one congresswoman, Marianne Miller Meeks, she is a Republican from Iowa, also representing a swing district, when she voted against Jordan, in the 12 hours after she casted that vote, she put out a statement saying that she was getting death threats, that she had to alert law enforcement to let them know about wow. this. So Jordan has finally, at least through a tweet, condemned all of this that is happening, all these attacks that are happening. But, you know, a lot of Republicans, again, think that apology is pretty weak. They, as much as Jordan's team has said, we're not the ones involved in the pressure campaign, Jordan himself wanted to hold public votes on the House floor because he knew that the Republican base would start to go after Republicans, whether he knew it would be threatening, Mm. that we don't know. But he knew that the MAGA Trump base would start to target all of these holdouts in hopes that it could pressure them to flip in support of his candidacy. Oh, because the votes are taken in public, it forces people to say which side they're on, yeah. Exactly. Mm, I see. So how did those votes go? When did they start? And where we stand now? So... Republicans started voting on Tuesday morning. Wilson of South Carolina. Jordan. Whitman. And they only held one vote. Jordan. Everyone knew leading into that vote that Jordan was going to fail. There were 20 Republicans who voted against who come from different parts of the conference, none of whom are actual, you know, hardliners who are really for Jordan. Then you fast forward to Wednesday. Because Jordan wanted a solid 24 hours to try and twist arms and make sure some of those 20 would come into the fold for him. Wednesday morning, his own allies were saying, hey, you should all probably expect to see a couple more defections, which is something that we have been hearing for some time. Mm. But right now, there are more Republicans who actually have flipped against Jordan he has not done a good job of winning over support. Wow. No person having received a majority, the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. The chair declares the House in recess subject to the call of the chair. Are there other options on the table that Republicans are considering? Yes. So Congressman David Joyce, he actually represents a group of Republican centrists. He's leading an effort to try and pass a resolution that would essentially give McHenry more powers. Because as of right now, all that McHenry can do is oversee the election of a speaker. He can't put legislation on the floor. The House is completely frozen and Republicans are getting fed up with that. So if we get to the point where there is no one Republicans can elect, this amendment is something that Joyce, a number of other moderate Republicans, are actually already talking to Democrats about somehow putting on the floor and giving McHenry more latitude so that they could, at least until the end of the year, pass a number of bills that need to be addressed. 
On Thursday, the house was at a standstill. By late afternoon, it was still up in the air whether Jim Jordan would call for a third vote for speaker. So an important question arose. Could interim speaker Patrick McHenry get expanded powers? Reporter Paul Kane was back on Capitol Hill to see what McHenry thought about that. We're having an active and vigorous conversation. That was Speaker Patrick McHenry, I'm sorry, acting Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry, who will not answer questions as to whether or not he is going to take on these new powers to be acting Speaker, or or I guess Speaker Pro Tem. It's all too confusing right now. After the break, Mariana tells us more about the man who helped create all this confusion, Jim Jordan. We'll be right back. So, Mariana, I do want to step back and just talk a little bit more about Jim Jordan since he has been at the center of so much of this house drama. And it's worth learning a little bit more about him and his backstory and history. So can you just tell me a little bit about that? How did he rise up through the ranks to find himself in this position? Jordan was elected around the Tea Party movement, where we saw a lot of voters saying, you know what, we want more limited government. Stop spending our money. Washington as a whole needs to be reformed. And that is the momentum that brought him into Washington. And that has always been his mantra. We need to change this place. The way this place runs is absurd. He was really against the Affordable Care Act, was one of those people constantly saying, we need to repeal this. We need to get rid of that health care law. And he has always been a thorn on leadership side. He was the one who founded the House Freedom Caucus, which to this day is still the most conservative ideological faction within the Republican conference. And Jordan is actually the reason why Speaker John Boehner and also Paul Ryan ended up stepping down before they were actually threatened with a motion to vacate vote because they knew that the Freedom Caucus was going to try and pull that trigger at some point. And both speakers left on their own terms and have since Mm. become very vocal about the fact that this group does not allow Republicans generally to govern. I believe it was Boehner who actually called Jordan a legislative terrorist because he does not allow legislation to pass. And then since he's been in Congress, has he, you know, been involved in any legislation or how has he sort of conducted himself on the Hill as a congressman involved in some of the most pressing matters this country is facing? So he's only introduced three pieces of legislation in the 17 years that he has been on Capitol Hill, one of them notably being the creation of this weaponization committee, because Jordan has really made a name for himself as an investigator, for example, leading the investigation into Benghazi against Hillary Clinton. State Department experts knew the truth. You knew the truth. But that's not what the American people got. Now he is looking into Hunter Biden, Biden's own son. This is a tale as old as time. Politician takes action that makes money for his family 
And then he tries to conceal it. And also, as judiciary chairman, is going after a number of Biden cabinet officials, most notably Alejandro Mayorkas over at the Department of Homeland Security, because Republicans are so keen on doing something, even though these investigations aren't really leading to much, on border security. Mm. One other thing that Jordan is known for is his time as a wrestling coach at Ohio State. This was exposed a while back where one of the doctors had actually sexually assaulted scores of wrestling students. And a number of the students came out publicly and blamed Jordan for actually not doing anything about it. They claimed that they had told Jordan about this, that it was a continuing problem, and Jordan just looked the other way. Jordan has continually denied that he knew about these allegations over the years. We knew of no abuse, never heard of abuse. If we had, we'd have, we'd have reported it. Yeah, you know, knew, knew uh, the doctor. Um, but there is no truth to the fact that that I knew of any abuse. Of, or I've talked to other coaches. They didn't know of any abuse. Um, it just, just, it, that's just not accurate to say those things, that we knew of it and didn't report it. It's just not true. And, you know, when we've asked Republicans about this, whether this is an issue for them when they're casting votes in support of Jordan for Speaker, they say it's not. And so, Mariana, right now, you and I are talking to each other Thursday during the day. We're not sure what's going to happen with Jim Jordan's future. But I'm also thinking about the future of Congress and specifically the agenda that Congress faces. What are some of the main issues you see going forward, and what are those main pieces of legislation that are most immediately pressing as Congress is trying to figure out who's going to be in charge? So there are a number of things, simply because it's the end of the year. There's so many end-of-year deadlines. First and foremost, it's funding the government. We remember at the end of September, Republicans and Democrats extended that timeline for over a month. We're now less than a month away from that deadline, and no one has talked about funding the government because the House is completely frozen and focused on electing a speaker. So that's a key priority. Of course, during this time, we've seen the war in Gaza erupt between Israel and Hamas. Republicans and Democrats want to do something to address that issue and help Israel sending them supplemental aid, for example. There's still a desire to help Ukraine and also send a lot of money to disaster relief that we're seeing here domestically after a number of natural disasters that have happened this year. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of priorities that need to get done at the end of this year that Americans may not be thinking about right now, but they absolutely will if these key things expire. It is so hard to please a majority of Republicans, many of whom have differing opinions, regardless on whatever subject they have to consider. And that's what we're seeing play out. They're in a complete logjam as to which Republican could get the necessary 217 Republican votes. And it's something that we've seen just throughout the year on policy, on, on personal politics. This is the inflection point for this razor-slim Republican House majority. Well, Mariana, thanks for making time to speak with us. Uh, we'll be watching, and, you know, good luck on the Hill as you continue to follow this. Thanks so much. 
Mariana Sotomayor covers Congress for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Bishop San. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Rena Flores. Thanks to Ariel Plotnick, Paul Kane, and Anna Ashbrenner. We have some exciting news to share about Washington Post subscriptions and audio. If you're already a Washington Post subscriber, starting today, you can now get access to Washington Post podcasts ad-free in Apple Podcasts. And there are more audio perks coming around the corner. So connect your post subscription and Apple Podcasts and stay tuned for more subscriber-only benefits, like exclusive and early access episodes. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Washington Post, this is a great time to start. You can get access to all that The Washington Post has to offer. And now you'll also get ad-free podcasts and more premium audio perks. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or by following the link in our show notes. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>